um, giving Laura and I a little bit of space um, last week and uh, continuing on this week and a little bit more uh, through the rest of the year as we uh, just kind of process through the reality of the life that we're in right now. And so we ask that you um, continue to pray for us. Uh, we thank you so much for your encouragement and support along the way. Uh, we do have another doctor's appointment tomorrow and are meeting uh, with the doctor every single week now uh, to continue to assess uh, how the baby is doing. Uh, so we pray for uh, more growth tomorrow and pray that she will have grown uh, significantly uh, over the last three weeks. Uh, last week, Lee, thank you so much for preaching for us and uh, being able to continue on in our series uh, with joy last week. Um, and uh, this week, uh, we have Brent McCall joining us uh, to share on the topic of peace. Uh, in 1999, I left Harding University and came back to the University of New Mexico, the place I said I would never, ever go to school. Um, and. Uh, went to UNM and immediately jumped into the campus ministry at the student center there and got involved. Uh, it wasn't long after that uh, that Brent came to me and offered an internship. Uh, it was paid as long as I raised the support. Um, and so... <laughs> Uh, it was a very generous offer. And so I uh, went and raised support, and uh, there are lots of families that I still uh, come in contact with uh, here and at Netherwood and around town that were a key part of the support of that. And in that time is where I learned how to preach. Um, so you can blame Brent for anything and everything that happens here, right? So, um, so it was in that time I was able to uh, learn the craft and the art of preaching. It really is an art and a craft. And I was able to, to work with him on that. Uh, he was also teaching a public speaking class at UNM and so took that as well. So I was getting that from, from both directions and uh, was really able to, to learn that craft. And so... Uh, really, when uh, Laura and I first got the news about Baby, the first phone call I think we made, or one of the first people we called, was Brenton Page. And there are times to phone a friend, and the last couple weeks was one of those times, and I called and I said, I need help preaching. <laughs> and so Brent has come to preach and share with us and talk about peace. Um, also have Troy scheduled in November and Jim Browning scheduled in for one week in November, not all of November, one week in November, <laughs> and then Jim Browning will be preaching one week in December as well. And so I, we, we just thank you for the space and the grace that you've given us uh, as we go through this season. And Brent, thank you for coming. So last week I happened to be preaching at Valley View, uh, Valley View Christian where Paige and I attend and I, I serve as the very part-time teaching pastor. My parents actually were in the audience, first time that they've actually been in the audience since my early Raintree days there in Lubbock and so I was actually just spur of the moment able to thank them for being people of faith and, and really grounding me in my faith. So as I stand in front of this family. I was just thinking, in a way, you guys are really surrogate families, so, so thank you to all of you for what you did in providing a framework and a groundwork for Paige and I to learn ministry at Student Center, which, which Jason just described. And, and um, you know, you were one of the very first churches 
Uh, when we, at the time when we came in 1995, it was pretty much just uh, University Church Christ, and it was uh, Mountainside that were supporting the student center. And y'all's elders were one of the very first to say, you know what, we're on board, we're on board. So thank you for being there over the years for, for every ministry that I've been a part of. And uh, I, I, I want you to believe, I, I hope that you believe that that was, that was wise, that you were being prophetic and getting behind some folks to do ministry that candidly hadn't had a lot of expertise in ministry up to that point. And now that has actually borne fruit for you. And it's just, it tickles my heart to watch Jason and Laura ministering in this context. You guys were very, very wise in choosing them to lead you during this season uh, at Montgomery. And just so grateful to be able to be here uh, uh, and, and fill in during this time for them. Talking about the subject of peace from Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit, some of your core virtues. Before we actually get to the scriptural evidence for this, of course, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you don't even have to be a Christian to desire peace. In fact, there was some research done recently by Gallup, and they said, what constitutes successful living? And peace of mind was in the top five. The only ones that were ahead of it were education, job, family, and good health, all of which I think happened to feed into having peace of mind. So we desire peace of mind. We'll also pay quite a bit for it between the counseling and the self-help books and the sleep medication and the herbals and the tab at the bar. We're all seeking a little more peace and willing to pay for it. The problem is, as much as we desire it, it seems to be ever so elusive. We can't quite chase it down. And that is because of the enemy, Satan. He's the opposite of peace. He's not a peacemaker. He creates conflict. He loves warfare. He wants our countries to be at war. He wants our political parties and their candidates to destroy each other. He's a destroyer of peace. And some of you have experienced Satan, the enemy of peace, when he shows up in the ICU take a loved one. Some of you know that he can show up during a sonogram. For some of you, he showed up in the mail in the form of divorce papers or a lawsuit. For others, he shows up in the words, I don't love you anymore. I'm taking the kids with me. Or I'm having an affair. The destroyer of peace can also show up here among family members, amongst fellow Christians. As a former executive minister and senior minister for over 20 years, I've seen more than my fair share firsthand of how the enemy loves to destroy peace within the church of God. He loves it when we disagree, when we fail to forgive, when we demand our way, when we say the words, if you don't change, we're going to leave, or when you say the words, if you do change, we're going to leave. Oh, the enemy, he loves to wreak havoc. Something we all want, but something that's so elusive because of the enemy. And maybe that's why the Heavenly Father said so much about it in Scripture. Yes, in Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the Spirit, but it's a principle that we also read over 80 different times in the New Testament. 
It's mentioned in every single one of the Old Testament books, all 39. And maybe even none more prominent than Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the, the one that Clint just mentioned. Let's read it now. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but when I read the words that the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the one foretold of here by Isaiah, the Messiah, will actually put the government on his shoulders. And I know that for a lot of you, and you may be like me, where you're so weary of this election cycle, you're just ready for it to be behind us because it wears you out. But God is on the throne, regardless of what happens in two weeks. And the government is on his shoulders and about the time you think we've got it bad, imagine the context that Isaiah was writing. Imagine the context in which Jesus showed up. Talk about needing a little peace to know that the Prince of Peace was going to put the government on his shoulders. Now despite that promise and despite that Jesus the Messiah is very real, the reality is that peace is still not the norm. I want to share several reasons why I believe that peace is still not the norm as we wished it would be. First, many in the world have not yet submitted to the Prince of Peace. It's hard to represent peace when you haven't submitted to the Prince of Peace. Instead, whether they realize it or not, they're submitted to the Prince of the Air, the one who wants to create conflict, the one that wants to destroy peace. A second reason why peace is still not the norm is that even those of us who have submitted to the Prince of Peace, we Christians are still battling our desires within us. We still have a sinful nature that wants what we want. James says it this way in James 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. You quarrel and you fight. James was writing that to whom? Christians. So two reasons why peace is still not the norm. Many have not submitted to the Prince of Peace, and those who have are still battling their sinful desires. A third reason is that God actually uses the lack of peace. He uses troubles. He use, uses trials and tribulations to refine our faith. Let's read Romans 5, 1 and 2, and read about the Prince of Peace, but then read the context. Let's keep reading past verse 2. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Boy, good, good news, right? Peace with God. Yay! But keep reading. Look at verses 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also glory in what? Our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So understand that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can have peace with God, but that doesn't mean that peace in our lives will become the norm. In fact, we're not promised that. If anything, we're promised in this text the opposite. That trouble is going to occur. Why? Because God wants to refine our faith. It's not enough to have saving faith, church. 
God wants us to be shaped and transformed into his image. And the only way that he can do that is through the fire, through the crucible of pain. 1 Peter chapter 1 says it this way, verses 3 through 7. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is, peace with God, but keep going. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, this inheritance is kept for heaven, in heaven for you. Guess what? That peace with God will come fully to fruition when you get to be with him. But notice what's happening in the meantime. Verse 6. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proof so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You hear a theme? Peace with God doesn't guarantee peace in this world. It's not a norm that we as Christians should expect. In fact, it's something that we have to, to switch analogies to move away from fire crucible and refinement of gold let's shift over to the phrase no pain no gain it's as if jesus is saying you know what here's your workout regimen for the rest of your life and it's going to involve climbing some hills and going through some valleys it's going to be really really hard in fact you're going to have to work at it but it's in the straining for it. That we're working out our faith, to quote another passage from Philippians, that we're literally trying to prove ourselves worthy of the peace of God that we freely receive. We're not working out our faith in order to have peace with God. That is guaranteed and assured. What is not, though, is peace on earth. That's something we're going to have to work at. The good news is, though, we're not in a workout regimen by ourselves. Galatians 5 basically tells us that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. It's like he is your great workout partner. And the Holy Spirit is not only there to root you on, to encourage you, to be your comforter, to be your advocate, but he's also there to empower you, to give you strength that you didn't think you could possibly have. So we're going to have to work at it. We're going to have to work at peace on earth especially in two contexts that I want us to discuss this morning. The first context is peace within ourselves, especially during difficult circumstances, and the second is peace with others during disagreements or disappointments. Let's go ahead and take a look first at how we find, what does Scripture teach us about striving for peace within ourselves in the context of difficult circumstances? Well, of course, Philippians is the best letter for this. Philippians is where we learn from Paul firsthand how to have peace within, despite our circumstances. He had a lot of credibility to write what he did to the Philippians because he too was experiencing times of difficulty. Remember where he was when he was writing the letter to the Philippians? In a jail cell, potentially awaiting his own execution. And yet, despite that context, despite that circumstance, what is the one word that's used more often in the letter to the Philippians in any other? What Lee preached about last week, joy. Joy, which reflects an inner peace despite one's circumstances. 
In chapter 1, he kind of demonstrates for us what a peace of mind looks like in difficult circumstances. In chapter 1, he basically says to the Philippians, you know what, don't worry about the fact that I was wrongly accused and thrown into jail. It's really working out for the better. Why? Because I'm getting to preach to my prison guards. Woo! Yeah! Okay? And never mind the fact that there are actually preachers out there who are rather opportunistic who are trying to one-up me and become the leader of the church. That's cool. Let them preach all they want. Why? Because the gospel is being preached, and that's all that matters. And oh, that thing about that execution, it doesn't really matter. I don't care whether I get executed or not, because if I die, guess what? I get to go be with Jesus. If I get a reprieve, well, then I'll keep doing ministry. Either way, I'm good. So he's demonstrating peace within in chapter 1. And then in chapter 4, he actually gets down to teaching us how we should live in order to be more like him. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Do all these things and what? And the God of peace will be with you. In which circumstances? All circumstances, including the most dire circumstances. Let's take a few minutes to unpack this. I think there are four principles here in this passage, and hopefully you've got it there in your Bibles where you can kind of follow along. Verse 6, the first principle that I see in verse 6 is to worry about nothing and pray about everything. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything with prayer and petition. You need to turn your worries over to God. 1 Peter chapter 5 Peter writes it this way. He said, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. The question, of course, is when we pray, do we really let go? Afraid uh, I'm a little bit too much like children described in this poem when it comes to my prayer life. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to men, I brought my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched him back and I cried, How could you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did. Let go. See, I think maybe we know what it is to pray about our problems, but I don't know that I've yet really adopted the ability to let go of the problems. It's a cute little phrase, let go, let God. But how good are we at truly getting out of his way and letting the one who cares for us take care of it? To cast all of our anxiety on him. Paul says that's the first step toward having peace with God. 
a peace that passes understanding is to stop worrying and to start praying. Oh, how we get that one wrong. I, I think worry, obviously a sin. Jesus called it out as much in Matthew 6. But candidly, it's the one type of sin that we don't even try to hide in the church. Do we? Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so worried. Jesus would say, that's sinning. If you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're worried, then that tells me that you are trusting yourself more than you're trusting me. The first step is we've got to pray about everything so that we worry about nothing. Step two from this text, also in verse six, remember his faithfulness. Adopt an attitude of gratitude. Did you see in the text when it said, pray about everything with prayer and petition with what? With thanksgiving. See, part of why Paul was able to rejoice in the prison cell is that when he prayed to God, he didn't just say, please, please, please. He also said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You see, when you pray, not only in petition, it's okay to ask God for things, in prayer and petition, okay? So it is perfectly okay to ask God to take care of it. But in that very same prayer, he also says, but you have to do it in the context of thanksgiving. In the context of saying, God, you have been so faithful over and over and over. Let me count the ways. I used to do a, an exercise in some of my lay counseling with members of our church that would come in that were just overwhelmed with grief and anxiety. And before we would pray... Before we would have our extended time of prayer and petition, I would ask them to take out a sheet of paper, and I said, in the next 10 minutes, I want you to write down as many things as possible that you're thankful for. What? I'm here to pray about my problems. Okay, we're going to get there. But I, first thing first, for the next 10 minutes, I want you to see how much you could put on this piece of paper. What are you thankful for? Boy, did it change the way we prayed. You know, the enemy, he wants us to only focus on the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties. Because when he does that, then we enter petition in a much different way, not thanking him for all the ways that he's been faithful. And in the process, the prince of the air steals our peace. The prince of peace is standing here saying, please remember all the ways that I've been faithful. And that'll bring you some peace. But we have a tendency to be rather myopic. By the way, if that same piece of paper were handed to someone and we were asked them to, hey, fill out as many of your wishes, all the things that went wrong in your life, all the things that you wish were different, all the things that you should have had but didn't get, how much longer could that list be? Which really leads us to this third point, that we need to control our thoughts. That we as human beings have this tendency to be glasses half empty people. The world doesn't help us out because it is fallen. And so when the world is fallen, we spend most of our time dwelling on the negative. All that is wrong with our country. All that is wrong with our world. All that is wrong with our kids. And Paige and I have such high expectations for our children, but sometimes that, that, that shows up in the form of we're never satisfied. The other day, my, my 16-year-old, he said, Dad, I got all my grades up, but you haven't said a thing about it. All you said is it's not yet high enough. <clears throat> Paul says that we need to change the way we think. 
We need to be willing to focus more on the positive instead of the negative. And then he is very explicit in the filter, the test that he wants us to consider. So think about your thoughts on a daily basis. Do they meet this test? Are they noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? You know what Paul would say? He says, if, if your thoughts on a daily, hourly basis don't meet that standard, then it's time to change the channel. It's time to turn off those thoughts. It's time to refocus your mind on all the things that are excellent and praiseworthy and noble and right and admirable. And when you do that, then you're going to have a peace that passes understanding. The God of peace will enter your life. And one of the ways that maybe we, we have to also change our environment by the people we hang out with, that's really the fourth thing I see in this text. Surround yourself, this is verse 9, surround yourself with positive examples and follow their lead. What did Paul say? He said, whatever you have heard from me, whatever you've seen in me, what? Put it in practice. You know, I think sometimes we're, we're not hanging out with the right people. How about you? You hang out with people that tend to build you up? That are more positive? That are good examples? That are worthy of emulation? Or are you hanging out with a different crowd? See, one of the ways that we have our peace stolen from us is that we hang out with people who don't get peace. They love conflict. And they love telling you all the things that are going wrong with the world. And you spend very little time around them. What happens? It's contagious. And before you know it, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Yesterday afternoon, I played golf with a couple guys, and all they did for four straight hours is beat on me about who you're voting for, who you're voting for. And if we don't get this right, guess what? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. By the time I got done to the 18th hole, I was so exhausted. And I kept just trying to tell them, you know what? God is on the throne. God is on the throne. The Prince of Peace has the government on his shoulders. And that's where I'm putting my trust. Regardless of what happens in two weeks, I choose to trust that God is on the throne. Now, probably not going to play golf with those guys until well after the election. Because that wore me out. <laughs> Make sure you surround yourself with people that are worthy of emulation. That are a good example. So that's four principles on how to obtain or strive for peace within during difficult circumstances. As we move to close, let me give you a couple thoughts regarding striving for peace with others in the context of disagreements or disappointments. Staying here in Philippians, because Philippians happened to be a text where this was a problem. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. Probably the main reason why he wrote the letter in the first place, according to many scholars. Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, some of you read it, fellow yoke fellow, I still read it that way, fellow yoke fellow, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, here in Philippi, we had a little bit of infighting going on. You had Yodia and Syntyche, two women who apparently weren't getting along. They're having a disagreement with one another. 
They're disappointed in one another. We don't know the exact nature of it, but Paul gives us a prescription here for finding peace with others, even in that context. Before we get to the two suggestions I see specific to finding peace with others, let me underline something that I just found this week in my study I had never really noticed before. I love the fact that these two women, along with Clement and the others, are referred to as having their names written where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a tendency to check people off my list if they're an instigator of division. Whoop, too bad. They're not a Christian anymore. Not according to Paul. Do you know what? They're still in the Lamb's Book of Life, along with all the rest of you. They didn't see it the way you see it, but guess what? You don't get to check them off the list. That's up to God. Now then, what two suggestions does he have for us here? First of all, he says, agree with one another in the Lord. What does that mean, basically? He wants us to agree on the things that we can agree on. I don't know about you, but whenever I get into a fight with my wife, I'm usually majoring in minors. Majoring in minors. Nitpicking. Parsing words. Semantics. Well, that isn't what you said. That isn't what I meant. Instead, I think what... The lesson here, regardless of the nature of your conflict with another person, what Paul is suggesting here is pull back far enough until you can find what you can agree on. 99 out of 100 times, my wife and I ultimately agree on things. We want the same thing. And Paul is saying, if you would pull back far enough to then have your starting point is the things you can agree on, then guess what? Suddenly the things you disagree about will take on their proper perspective. Boy, how true is that in the Lord, right? When we are in the Lord together and we can agree about that, then suddenly all of the disagreements take on their proper weight. A second suggestion that I take from this text is that Paul encourages them to get some help. He calls out his yoke fellow, his helper. We don't really know his name or not exactly who it is, but he's another believer in the church and he says, hey, you serve as peacemaker. And he's saying to Yodi and Syntyche, get with this guy. Get with him. You know what Paul's saying in this? He's saying that sometimes it takes a village to raise peace too, not just a family. And yet, I think somehow the church has adopted a, maybe a different perspective. We, we've kind of gone the other in the other direction with this, that, that where we know there's conflict within the body, we, we tend to want to try to, you know, pretend it's not there, kind of sweep it under the rug. If we know that a couple is having problems or difficulty, what do we do? Well, we just give them space. Paul calls out these two ladies forever and ever for us to read about. Now, some of us might say, well, that's kind of harsh, calling these ladies out for the division. That, well, you know what Paul is saying? He's basically saying, you know what? I actually read what Jesus wrote about and said in the Sermon on the Mount. To leave your altar, to leave your gift at the altar, leave the altar, go settle it. Go be reconciled. It's that important. The testimony of the body of Christ matters too much to allow families to be torn apart, to allow marriages to be torn apart, to allow brothers and sisters to be torn apart. All of us should aspire to the role of peacemaker. He's saying to Yoke Fellow, be one. 
And he's saying to these ladies, go find one. If you are in the middle of a contracted situation and you need the shepherds and you need the shepherds' wives in this church, that is not failure. You're simply doing what Scripture calls for. If you need to go rely on a small group leader, that's not failure. That's simply doing what Scripture calls for. If you need to go find a counselor, a third party, to help you work through some issues with another person, that's not failure. You're just simply doing what Scripture calls us to. So let me summarize what we've said, and then we'll, we'll have one final song that kind of is, is part of our prayer time and response time. So first of all, in summary, peace with God. Praise God. It's available to us. The Prince of Peace did come, according to Isaiah. You can have peace with God. You can be forgiven your sin problem. And the good news is that's not something you've got to strive for. That's not something you've got to go strain for. It's not something you've got to go work hard at. Just receive it. Just receive it. If you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've never participated with Him in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to invite you to, to make that known today. Because until you have peace with God, then you can't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then there's no chance you're going to bear this fruit. Now, even if you have done that, for the vast majority of you, check, I have peace with God, but guess what? It's still not the norm in our lives. That's, that we've got to work for. That we've got to strive for. The good news is the Holy Spirit's a workout partner, and he's saying, let's go, you and me together. So what are some suggestions that we've talked about in having peace with ourselves? Four things we talked about. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. Remember his faithfulness. Have an attitude of gratitude. Number three, control your thoughts. Focus on the positive, not the negative. Number four, surround yourselves with positive examples and follow their lead. And then in terms of striving for peace with others, focus on what you can agree about. And don't be afraid to ask for help. So here in a minute, the, the praise team is going to be back up and we're, gonna, we're going to sing a song that hopefully you know well. And maybe you've even heard the story about the song that we're going to read, but I think it, it bears repeating. So in 1871, um, it was the Great Chicago Fire. Yes, the new one is in 2016 via the World Series. None, sorry. For those of you that are Cubs fans, I'm so sorry. The, the Lord is still seated on the throne. Just remember that. Okay. In 1871, something far worse occurred. The Great Chicago Fire. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their homes. 300 people lost their lives. And a gentleman, an attorney named Horatio Spafford, had a lot of land, and he lost a lot of it in the fire. And in that context, he also lost his son to a disease. It was a couple years later, though, that his wife, Anna, and he decided they needed some time away to kind of recoup. So a couple years later, they decided to go on a vacation to Europe. At the last minute, Horatio had a business situation arise that kept him from joining his wife and four daughters on the trip over to England. But they went ahead and departed, and he would follow up soon enough. And of course, some of you know the story. It was there around Newfoundland that they encountered an English shipping vessel, and 
the ship they were on crashed into the shipping vessel and in 20 minutes it sank to the bottom of the ocean. 226 people died because of that shipwreck. There were about 47 people who lived. Anna, Horatio's wife, was one of the 47. His four daughters all perished. 226 people plus the four daughters were dead. Anna Spafford's heartbreaking telegram to her husband simply said two, two words, saved alone. So he did what you would expect any grieving father to do. He caught the next ship to England to go be with his grief-stricken wife. But on the way over to Europe, as the ship came near Newfoundland, where his four daughters had lost their lives just days prior, he penned the following words in the context of a poem which became a song we're about to sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. As we sing these words, you may have a different scene in mind. Not where a ship sunk off the coast of Newfoundland, but maybe where the enemy of peace showed up at the ICU or at the sonographer's office. Maybe the day you open that mail with a divorce decree or a lawsuit. Or maybe you think about the setting where you first heard the words, I'm having an affair. I'm taking the kids with me. Or I want a divorce. But whatever the scene is that comes to mind for you as we sing these words, I want you to remember that we ultimately are singing to the Prince of Peace. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Now for some of you, these words may have meant more in a different time and place. Maybe right now things aren't so difficult for you, in which case I want to remind you of something that we talked about in this particular message, and that is that now you have a responsibility to be peacemaker. So while we sing this song, if you know that there's somebody in here who's going through a difficult time, who needs peace, then let's be the family of God. Let's rally around each other. Go put a hand on them while you sing. But whatever the case, know that we are praying to the Holy Spirit to make these words in this song a reality in our lives, that we will experience supernatural fruit, a peace that passes understanding. Father God, thank you for your words in Scripture. Thank you for this promise. Bless us now as we stand. Bless us as we worship. In Jesus' name.